I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Kilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Jamie, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Ryan, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax News listeners. On this double feature edition of the program, we're going to be talking later on in the show with Dr. Wheatman Bourne, a Holocaust historian who has a lot to say about the recent trend by some to argue that the Nazis were somehow better than Hamas, and why this ends up distorting our understanding of the Holocaust and could lead down some dangerous roads. But first, Genocide Studies scholar Dirk Moses, author of The Problems of Genocide, Permanent Security, and The Language of Transgression, returns to discuss his recent Boston Review piece entitled More Than Genocide, which tackles the Gaza War from a perspective that could be called the permanent security paradigm. In Professor Moses' piece, he seeks to go beyond the question of whether or not Israel's current bombardment of Gaza is a genocide. More on that in the conversation to follow. We'll also be talking about the recent letter of solidarity signed by such German intellectual heavyweights as Jürgen Habermas and why Dirk Moses found the letter to be tone-deaf and irresponsible. All that and more to come. With that being said, let's get right to it with Dirk Moses. Welcome back to Parallax Views, a guest that I hold in very high regard. 
the last time we spoke, I was telling him how impressed I was with his book. A. Dirk Moses is the Anne and Bernard Spitzer Professor of International Relations at CCNY, editor of the Journal of Genocide Research, and author of The Problems of Genocide, Permanent Security, and the Language of Transgression. He's also the author of a recent piece in the Boston Review entitled more than genocide, which will be the subject of our discussion. How are you doing, Professor Moses? Doing very well here in Vienna this evening, morning or afternoon, your time, I guess. Well, I want to thank you for coming on. Uh, this piece you've written in Boston Review, I guess some people will probably see it as uh, provocative, although I, I think it's uh, thought-provoking in the best way possible. And you're really tackling this question that people are asking of, is what is happening in Gaza a genocide? And there are a lot of scholars uh, trying to make that argument right now. I know that um, Rez Segal from Jewish Currents made that case. You, though, are saying that maybe we need to look past the debate over genocide or not and look at something else, which is permanent security. Maybe you can lay out the basic outline of, of why you're saying we need to look beyond the genocide debate. Sure. Now, I, I want to I want to put on the record that you know I agree with uh, Raz Siegel, who I know quite well, and and others who've contributed to this debate in pointing out that there's now an extensive record of statements by Israeli leaders, uh, people in the press, and uh, in the military as well, making genocide-like statements you know, raising Gaza from the map, invoking biblical tropes which point to uh, extermination and so forth. So that that's a matter of record now, not, you know, of anyone's particular opinion. When it comes to a legal determination of genocide, because in the end it's not just a sort of a metaphor, it's a legal concept. I mean, there's a law, and it's uh, in the uh, Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, which draws on the convention on the prevention and punishment of genocide from 1948. And we need to look at that and uh, ask ourselves, how, how does that work? Now, apart from the very stringent definitional requirements, there's the issue that scholars can't just declare that something is a genocide as a matter of law. Uh, states aren't put on trial. You know, Israel or, one, or any other country can't be declared as guilty of genocide. The, the ICC or an ad hoc criminal tribunal like the one for the former Yugoslavia or Rwanda placed individuals on trial uh, for genocide, crimes against humanity and war crimes. And even in those two cases of the ad hoc tribunals, genocide was quite a rare occurrence in terms of a, an indictment that was successfully prosecuted. War crimes and crimes against humanity were far more common because it's much easier to prove. Although the acts that are entailed in exterminating people and so forth uh, are, are the same. Now, we can get into the details of why that's the case down the track. Now, the, the problem is, is that it's because of these, these stringent legalities uh, of proving genocide, it's all too dangerous, if you like, for claimants, for example, Palestinian advocates in this case, to get bogged down in hair splitting about whether this is genocide or not genocide. And the to lose sight of what's going on on the ground, which is you know the mass slaughter of people, uh, well over 10 or 12,000 now, 
it's hard to keep up because it's mounting every day. And that doesn't include the the many more who are wounded, right? So uh, casualties number far greater. Now, of course, uh, the advocates aren't losing sight of that. I'm not suggesting that people alleging genocide are ignoring what's happening there. And it's because this is happening that they're, they're outraged and uh, looking for redress. Now, the problem is, is that once that accusation is in the room, then you know the international lawyers weigh in and say, well, is it's not genocide, is it genocide? And it gets very technical. And I've studied these kinds of campaigns in the past. For example, there was... Uh, an intense campaign, you know, with marches down the street, banners and so forth, uh, regarding the Biafras, uh, Nigeria secessionist war in the late 60s, and then just a few years later, about the secession of East Pakistan to become Bangladesh in 1971. There were mass protests, particularly in London, and very similar rhetoric that we see today. Now, at the time these were discussed, these allegations of genocide, and the consensus was that, no, this is a civil war, uh, these were military actions. This uh, a lot of people were killed, far more people than we're talking about today. I mean, in the Nigeria Biafra case, uh, possibly three million, mainly through starvation. Right? And uh, in the in the Bangladeshi case, I mean, the, the, the figure that's used in Bangladesh is, I think, is also three million. But other scholars talk about up to a million, uh, not through executions, but through dying, through um, exposure, as as well as mass killing by the Pakistani army. So the numbers are far greater than we're talking about today. And these were intensely debated as genocide at the time. But who remembers that today, at least as an act of genocide, right? I mean, people in the in the region haven't forgotten it. But in terms of, sort of international memory, right, it's utterly forgotten. Uh, because, you know, we ended up debating, you know, whether this is genocide or not. Whereas what I think we should be doing, if you like, in addition to this, and this is what the second part of your question, uh, JG, is thinking about thinking about the and putting pressure on the rationale that states use, and in this case, Israel and its allies, for its actions. And the rationale is security and self-defense. And this needs to be placed under pressure because this is a language of legitimacy. States justify and get away with their actions by saying this is self-defense. These are legitimate security interests. And what we need to do is put pressure on that. And what we can see when you do put pressure on that is that states, in, in the cases that I've been mentioning, uh, not just today, but these ones in, in Nigeria and in Pakistan, and many other cases in world history, past and present, is that states exceed any legitimate sense of what national security can entail. And they, they steer towards what I call permanent security. So security is legitimate. Permanent security is illegitimate because what it means is that you're uh, attempting to enforce a once and for all solution so that never again can an enemy be a threat. Now, when we're talking about an insurgent group, which is usually the case in, in these circumstances, the the way permanent security works is that the entire population that they purport to represent, in this case, Palestinians in Gaza, in relation to Hamas, is the target because Hamas comes from this population. So rather than attacking Hamas surgically, which of course is very difficult in this dense urban environment, the entire population is attacked. And not just momentarily, but with the aim of ensuring that Hamas could never re-emerge from this population. So 
we all see uh, talk right now of Israeli aims to deport the population into Sinai. Now, we know the Egyptians and other states are unhappy about this and won't accept it. And, and uh, Western governments are slowly uh, making statements to the effect that they don't support this either. But this seems to be the strategic aim. And this is permanent security uh, because the entire population is attacked and removed so that never again in the future can a threat like what happened on October 7th recur. And we should be talking about the security pretexts. And genocide is, in a sense, a modality of permanent security. I'll, I could say much more, but I'll, I'll leave it at that for the time being. And I know you want to probably get into this or that aspect of it. Yeah, I was just going to mention real quick for people that want to learn more about the sort of stated aims uh, of the Israeli government uh, in regards to what you're saying. I think it would be useful for, for people to look up the think tank that is very close to said government, uh, the Miskov Institute for National Security and Zionist Strategy, it has a grand plan uh, involving basically pushing Palestinians into the Sinai. So uh, that's an example of what you're talking about. I, I wanted to ask you, when it comes to this logic of permanent security, uh, do you get the feeling that we're seeing the permanent security logic being invoked more and more in the 21st century? What I mean by that is, I think this was the rhetoric used by Vladimir Putin to justify the invasion of Ukraine. Now, that doesn't mean I agree with the with the invasion, but yeah. he is using this rhetoric. It was almost akin to, I think, you know, the um, rhetoric used to invade Iraq. You know, he's saying, well, we have to do this to protect our interests and denazification. And I think we also see with this with uh, China and the Uyghurs. Uh, and also with uh, Myanmar, can you speak to that issue? Why are why are there so many instances now of the invocation of permanent security yeah. as justification for mass violence? Well, JJ, I agree with you entirely. And uh, allowing us to well talking about permanent security allows us to talk about its delusional aspects. So, for example, uh, or paranoid aspects. So, for example, in the the Russian Ukraine case, uh, we can we can note that Ukraine does not at this moment pose a threat to Russia. And, you know, it, it, there's no reason to think that it would in the future. However, from, you know, a paranoid uh, security apparatus, you know, the, the, the secret services that all states have, uh, they, they are thinking in terms of decades in the future, they think, well, in 40 years time, if Ukraine is embedded in the West, NATO missiles could be posted on its border with Russia. Then they can get to Moscow far more quickly than they could otherwise, and in fact, so quickly that we can't shoot them down in advance. So that, they're thinking about contingencies in the future. Okay? And that's the sort of the, this anticipatory nature of the paranoia in, in uh, permanent security. It's about what could happen. It's about worst case scenarios. Now, and so they invade. Now in the, the Myanmar case, you had uh, some attacks by a small secessionist group in Rakhine state of Rohingya, which is a Muslim minority, who the the uh, Myanmar nationalists say aren't really aren't really uh, from there. They were brought in by the British. They're really Bangladeshis and so forth, and were have been gradually stripped of citizenship over the years. In any event, there's this really quite in, uh, incidental minor uh, security crisis, and the the military in Myanmar uses this as a pretext to as it were, solve its Rohingya problem 
by deporting the entire population of that province, uh, mostly into Bangladesh, where these people are languishing in Cox's Bazar refugee camp. And to, this allows us to talk about the distinction between security and permanent security. If you had had a legitimate security campaign or action, the state would have just targeted the insurgents and, and prosecuted them, as every state is entitled to do. Uh, but what they're thinking about the future. They're thinking, hmm, where do these insurgents come from? They come from this population group. And the only way to prevent any insurgency in the future, which, you know, the danger for them is um, a secession, you know, a separatism and so, is to remove the entire population. So there's an expulsion, a murderous expulsion, because there's a lot of violence and burning down villages and so forth. Now, a similar kind of logic is underway uh, in Xinjiang province in China with the Uyghur population. But there it plays out differently. Once again, you had you had sort of a minor security crisis in uh, 2011, I think, and what the Chinese call their 9/11. But this is you know fantastical because the numbers are far smaller. And this is used as a pretext, um, invoking the the American global war on terror against you know, Islamist insurgents to crack down on the Uyghur population. Now, rather than expel them, they incarcerate them. Uh, in work and so-called re-education camps. And I mean, we're talking about over a million people in various camps. It's very hard to get data on this because it's not as if journalists can wander around there and interview people. But um, documents by the government have been leaked and there's, you know, there's uh, uh, satellite footage from Americans and they can see these camps and how they operate. And we know from witnesses and the large Uyghur diaspora, you know, they, they've lost track of their relatives in these in these camp system and so forth. And genocide was alleged less so now than a few years ago in these cases too, because there was allegedly sterilization going on and so forth. But the, the logic is the same. You know, in order to prevent a future threat, you have to, you have to uh, destroy in whole or in part or deport the, the population as a whole or pacify it in a, in, a, in, a, in a very emphatic way. Now, in many of these cases, genocide in the legal sense, is a threshold that won't be reached. So I'm thinking, rather than you know quibbling about does it meet this threshold or does not, let's let's put pressure on the security rationale and expose the state's hubris in in aspiring to permanent security. Now, of course, that's not a legal concept, but you know, I think it should be. One thing I wanted to ask you about is you have a line in your. Boston Review article, you write, mass state violence against civilians is not a glitch in the international system. It is baked into statehood itself. The natural right of self-defense plays a foundational role in the self-conception of Western states in particular, the formation of which is inseparable from imperial expansion. Could you talk a little bit about how uh, the idea of who gets to legitimately wield violence is influenced by things like uh, colonialism and uh, the imperial past. And I know this is a controversial subject right now because there's a lot of discussion about the settler colonial paradigm and its uses and abuses. Yeah. So I think it would be useful to talk about this. Sure. You know, my first book was about settler colonialism and genocide in Australia 19 years ago. And these these debates were held in the in the, the British Commonwealth countries, you know, uh, quite some time ago. It's eventually made its way to the U.S., uh, and I support this this concept and debate. 
unfortunately, you know, when it's wielded in the mouths of, you know, uh, I don't want to insult anyone, but, you know, undergraduate style sloganeering, then it becomes more a slogan than an analytical perspective. Uh, and it, and it's not one that exhausts what's going on in these societies, but it's certainly one that explains a lot of things. Now, you know, in, in a system of states, only the state has a has the right to wield violence. Non-state actors don't, okay? And that includes indigenous people. And if they resist the incursions by, by imperialists and colonialists, then they're, they're smashed in punitive exhibition uh, expeditions, or what I called these vicious reprisals, which in the main, uh, ex, you know, uh, killed far more people than the uh, indigenous resistance violence, you know, which was real. And, you know, in, in, in many cases in, in world history, uh, quote unquote, native resistance did kill settler families, women and children and so forth. This was this was extremely ugly. This occurred in the American frontier, the Australian frontier. But the, the reprisals by the, the, uh, the settlers were far worse in number. They exacted a far greater toll. I mean, that's why, in the end, this land is in the hands of settlers and not indigenous people. Okay. So it's it's rare that indigenous people won. So I mean, there's a lot of literature on that. So you know, only recently we're talking in the last thirty years has the legitimacy of national liberation movements been recognised in international law, and even that is partial. I'm talking about the additional protocols to the Geneva Conventions from 1977, which Israel and the US don't recognise, but to some extent has become part of customary international law. Now that means that Hamas can legitimately, or any resistance movement, can legitimately resist an occupation, but it's got to abide by international law itself. And that means the key distinction between attacking civilians and not civilians. You don't attack civilians, right? You have to make the principle of distinction, which is the key, the key concept in the, in the Geneva Conventions, among others. And Hamas failed to do that on the 7th of October when it massacred uh, you know, a thousand or so Israelis, civilians, in addition to soldiers, right, and kidnapped several hundred. Now, if it had limited itself to IDF personnel, whether in killing or in in kidnapping, we may be having a different kind of conversation. Um, it's hard to say, but but uh, you know, Israelis have interpreted this attack in sort of genocidal terms uh, because of the civilian population was attacked. And, and many in the West have, have, have agreed with that interpretation. And there are now you know, petitions by legal scholars who, who are alleging that we shouldn't be talking about genocide in Gaza, but genocide in, in this strip of uh, Israel that borders on, on the bo borders on this uh, fence with, with Gaza by Hamas, where Hamas is guilty of genocide. In any event, uh, Hamas did not do that, and of course, its its rocket campaigns over the years were also indiscriminate in the sense that they they just fired willy nilly into Israel and and target the civilian population. This is all contrary to international law, and in my view, you know, immoral and uh, strategically stupid. Uh, terrorizing civilians on on any side is uh, is not the way to go about these things. Could you elaborate on on? I was asking about the issue of how we end up seeing certain types of violence and legitimate and other right. uh, other forms is not legitimate. Yeah. Well, you know, as I said, the, the state violence is, is, is considered legitimate. It too, of course, is increasingly bound by 
uh, restraints as international law has developed over the last hundred years. Uh, but we shouldn't be too rosy in thinking about this because the law does allow the considerable amount of violence against civilians, and the Israelis will argue and, and are arguing that they you know that killing over ten thousand Palestinians is entirely legal uh, because it's incidental to the attack on military targets and they'll blame they'll blame Hamas for turning say a hospital or a school which are considered off bounds and and it, uh, a priori not military targets into military targets by storing weapons there or firing firing from there and you know, having a command and control center there and the law does allow that with restrictions now, the restriction is that the incidental civilian death must be proportionate to the military advantage sought now that this has now been you know quite well known everybody everybody's become an armchair international law expert uh, and then then it's for the courts to determine with each particular attack and we're talking about well over ten thousand missile attacks now so each one of those uh would need to be examined if, if they were if there were people indicted uh, particular commanders and the the target would need to be identified the the value of the target justified and then the then the, the incidental or collateral casualties calculated to see it's proportionate um, and it becomes this very creepy affair but the law does not prevent or does not render illegal or make illegal the killing of civilians now bear in mind this thought experiment which is quite central to my book on you know, called the problems of genocide if the law allows the incidental killing of civilians in in warfare lot so long as it's proportionate right and if warfare becomes permanent which it has been in a way for the since the global war on terror started and some argue since the second world war various colonial and small wars that various powers have been in, involved in then the law allows the continuous incremental of killing indefinitely of civilians so so much for international humanitarian law now the the realists among the international lawyers will say well that's at least better than all out war you know like in the second world war the wars of religion you know in the 17th century in europe where you know when the protestants massacred the catholics and vice versa right so war is an outlawed but it's restrained uh, and that would be a kind of a realistic uh, realist perspective you know i take a more pacifist view which is that i still think this calculation is entirely outlandish because when those rules were made war wasn't permanent war was occasional okay uh, but when war even if it's a smaller scale war uh, is something that's routinized and permanent and then then you're accepting the, the mass killing of civilians over time as a norm and i think that's rather chilling and something i don't think people really understand you know unless they're international lawyers there were just a few more questions i had for you if you can go a, a few more minutes um sure. there's two figures that you invoke uh that i thought were very interesting uh that are known within the sort of um intellectual history of the jewish people uh first off uh, jabotinsky and then mm -hmm. uh the jewish historian of nationalism, Hans Kohn. Uh, can you speak to why you invoked both of those figures in this Boston Review piece? Sure. So Vladimir or Zev uh, Yabotinsky was a, a revisionist scientist leader 
from Odessa, which in, in now in now in Ukraine, but then part of the Russian Empire, who wrote uh, a very important and influential essay in 1923 called The Iron Wall, uh, which has been translated easy to find online, in which he argued against uh, the Zionists like uh, Ben-Gurion and others who were trying to come to terms with the Palestinian population by offering them the inducements of modernity and and so forth. Uh, um, and he argued that you know you can never you can never fool an indigenous population, and he he did class the 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 Palestinian Arabs or the Arabs as he just called them uh, in the in, in analogous to the to Native Americans and so forth. Uh, you know, in sort of a global history of colonial struggle, he saw that this was a settler colonial uh, situation. He didn't use the term settler colonialism, but he did use colonial language, and and you know like the language of settlement. And he says, we're the settlers and they're the indigenous people or the natives, as he said. And native peoples, he, he explained to his readers, always resist incursions onto their land and they do so viciously. And, and uh, they will never give up because they love the land as much as we want it. Okay? So in a sense, he, although he used very racist tropes, he did dignify the quote unquote native with the with intense attachment to the land, and they weren't going to be bought off by uh, various material inducements. And he said the only solution to this is an iron wall, but by which he meant a military protection. Now, because uh, Jews were uh, you know, a small minority in, in Mandate Palestine at the time, and the British were in charge of the Mandate, which means a trust territory, uh, which was run by the British on behalf of the League of Nations, uh, the British have to be the iron wall. The British have to be the protective wall until until we can do it ourselves. Okay. Now, I was always fascinated by his use of colonial language in that, and his recognition that you know this is an indigenous people where the settlers, and the only way to defeat them is to is to do so militarily, and so that they understand they just have to give up eventually. Okay. Now, Hans Kohn was a uh, a, a very important historian of nationalism, originally from Prague. And he made his way uh, to Palestine at the same time and witnessed the Hebron massacre of Jews in 1929. And, it, you know, it was just a deplorable massacre. And he he understood this, you know, I guess a lot like Jabotinsky, as a kind of colonial uprising. And he thought this iron wall tactic is, is, is immoral because we can't impose this, we can't impose ourselves on an unwilling population. It'll just lead to more colonial reprisals and violence both ways. And I saw this as, as kind of prescient. I'm not the only one. Other people have written a lot about uh, Hans Kohn. Uh, he actually made his way eventually to New York and became a professor at the City College of New York in the history department. I'm in the political science department, but I'm just next door. So, you know, I, I see him as also a, a, a colleague, you know, uh, before my time. So he, he became a New Yorker and, uh, you know, he was a, a, a very far-sighted and humanistic thinker who understood that we need to, we, and he was a Zionist, that's why he was in Palestine, but we need we need a type of Zionism that is willing to share the land rather than come up you know, with military violent solutions. <clears throat> he would have, in a sense, predicted what's happening today. Yeah, I was just going to add to that. I feel like, uh, you know, we've seen the, the, I would say the culmination in some ways of Jabotinsky's view, this iron yeah. wall view, and yeah. I would say his uh, descendants now in, what I would call the Likud party, the, the Netanyahu yeah, faction. Exactly. And uh, it seems to me that 
uh, Cohn is very uh, prescient after October 7th because he basically argued this is untenable. And it seems like that is, you know, the reality that's setting in for a lot of people that, you know, the current status quo cannot work. Yeah. Yeah. Where Jabotinsky was wrong is that um, people won't give up resisting. I mean, you just have to watch Palestinian society. Uh, the notion of resistance is uh, is central to the identity. So in that sense, the Iron Wall has succeeded to some extent because you know Israel exists as a very powerful state. Palestinians are the dispossessed and occupied ones, right? But Palestinians have not accepted this state of affairs. And, and uh, this is where Cohn, I think, uh, um, had more human understanding. Before we close out, I also wanted to ask you about this letter that was signed in Germany, Principles of Solidarity, a statement. And it was signed by uh, Jürgen Habermas, who you've, you've tangled with him before, at least had a polite dialogue with him. Uh, yeah. What was this statement and why did you take issue with it? Because I, I saw what you said. You said this is a completely tone deaf statement to yeah. release. So give my listeners an idea of what this statement sure. was about and your issues with it. So this was a statement by by four or five German scholars or liberals about their principles of solidarity. I should add, just as a sidebar, yeah, I, I met Jürgen Habermas when I was a PhD student uh, doing my dissertation uh, in Germany. I was enrolled at UC Berkeley, but I lived in Germany for a couple of years at the end of the 90s and and went and visited him in his house in the Steinbergasse, south of Munich. And you know, we spent a couple of hours talking and we corresponded since then. Because there's a chapter about him in my book, The German Intellectuals in the Nazi Past which came out in 2007. And, you know, we had the odd correspondence over the years. He's not a big emailer. You know, he's, he's uh, born in 1929. Uh, and then, you know, I wrote this essay a couple of years ago about uh, German memory politics, which was quite critical. He wrote a reply uh, later that year that I wrote a reply in a German newspaper um, taking issue. But, you know, it's all very civilized and so forth. In any event, I mean, after all, he agreed, he, you know, he's a big believer in dialogue, you know, communicative ethics and so forth. In any event, these these five liberals, including him, signed this statement of solidarity a day or two ago. Uh, it's been translated in English, so you can find it on, on this website. Normative Orders, I think, is the name of the website. Uh, it's a project in Germany. And it, you know, it it, it, it it says a number of things, but, you know, it was written, you know, just a few days ago, and it barely mentions what's happening in Gaza, in which the death toll is now well over 10 times that which Hamas exacted. And, I was going to say no mention of the West Bank either. Yeah, there's no mention of there's no mention of a, the, this, the, 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 what's also what's happening on the West Bank now, where we have not just a slow motion ethnic cleansing, but slightly faster one, in which the settlers have been unleashed by the government to to start uh, pushing people out of villages. And right now, as we speak, settlers are in the Armenian quarter of the old city, where I've spent quite a lot of time over the years, uh, trying to evict. Um, Christian Armenians, who are also Palestinians, mind you, uh, from their quarters, and the the you know the police are, are police are helping them. So there's sort of a reign of terror in the West Bank. This is often forgotten with our focus on on Gaza. I think nearly 200 people have been shot there, Palestinians. Uh, it's just in the last month, and so the the two are related. And there's definitely an ethnic cleansing potential, if not worse, in the West Bank. The the the, the settlers want to and, and government ministers want to push the Palestinians into Jordan, which they think is really a Palestinian state. And the, none of this is registered in this in this letter by by Habermas and the others, who who 
although they sort of gestured to international law, seemed to be giving very much a green light to the Israeli military campaign. And, uh, you know, many, many commentators on social media were, were quite struck by the partiality of this of moral blindness, as I called it. They also, I think, misunderstand who and what Hamas is. Uh, they, they, they talk about it as if it's a, very much a stand-in for the Nazi party. Now, you know, I'm, I'm very much opposed to Hamas's terrorist uh, uh, policies and practices. Okay, but it, its aim is to evict Jews from what they see as their land. It's not to set up death camps around, you know, and 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 um, attack world Jewry uh, in the same way as the Nazis fantasized. I mean, okay, in some early Hamas documents, you could find language a bit like that, but they dialed a lot of that back, and they're very much focused on the land of Palestine. And uh, and and they don't they don't oppose Jews as such, but anyone colonizing their land. So if it was the Belgians, that they would be they would be training their rockets uh, at Belgians, right? So yes, there is a theological dimension to to a lot of their rhetoric, but they they're not ISIS. They're they're interested not in the caliphate. They're interested in just getting their land back, and they you know take very drastic and illegal terroristic measures to do so. And I, I, I don't see actually a very um, good understanding of the Middle East in, in this statement by these Germans. What harm can those? What harm can this statement do, though? Well, it's you know a lot of people in Germany have a much better sense of what's going on, and uh, a statement of solidarity uh, would have an ethics of the Geneva Conventions, which is that civilians are immune, and there would be equal empathy with. Uh, the Israelis who were killed on the 7th of October and the, the hostages and the, the Palestinians who have been killed. And there would be a recognition that there are thousands of Palestinians in Israeli prisons, many of them in administrative detention, which means that, you know they're not getting a fair trial. No one knows where they're going to get out. They've effectively been disappeared. And, but they, they don't even know that. I mean, the, the level of knowledge in German uh, the German uh, public sphere about what goes on in Palestinian territories is abysmal, apart from some specialists. Right? So I don't think they even realize that. So they have a kind of fantasy view of what's going on. I mean, the view in Germany, in the mainstream, is that uh, Israel would be like Switzerland, uh, Sweden, or Germany, in, you know, like a nice social democratic welfare state, very modern and, and uh, bringing progress to the barbarians were it not for these uh, obdurate Palestinians. I mean, that's untenable. Closing out here, because I know I kept you a little bit longer than expected. My my apologies. Um, when it comes to this permanent security uh, paradigm that you're talking about, it's funny. Um, about a year or so ago, I was talking to uh, former ambassador uh, Chaz Freeman, and we were talking about the situation with the Uyghur Muslims. And he was very reticent uh, to use the term genocide, uh, but he did say it was a horrible sort of a form of state violence that was going on. Uh, yes. Do you think that we need to be applying the permanent security paradigm to those issues as well? Absolutely. I, I think this is a, a temptation for all states when they feel they're existentially threatened. And I think that applied to US policy after 9-11. Uh, you know, once again, think of the distinction. Uh, the U.S. after 9/11 could have targeted the uh, Al Qaeda, Bin Laden, and you know surgically extracted, and then prosecuted. 
the, those are responsible for that terrible atrocity, right? But instead, there was an effort to uh, redesign the Middle East in the name of democracy, keeping the world safe for freedom, and these kind, this kind of rhetoric, which resulted in uh, hundreds of thousands of fatalities, you know, w wars across the region, uh, in order to make the place, you know, safe to the extent that never again could that kind of threat emanate from uh, from the Middle East, and then the opposite happened. Okay, so permanent security in its paranoia often produces that which it tries to tries to uh, prevent. So it's a, the paradox of paranoia. So, uh, you know, we should always try to challenge leaders when they talk about security. It's like, okay, let's talk about security rather than get hung up on whether this is not a genocide and, and uh, get them to justify what they're doing. Uh, in retrospect, everybody knows this was a terrible mistake. And, and Biden, you know, is saying to Israel, don't, in, don't do what we did after 9-11. I mean, he doesn't use the language of permanent security, obviously, but he's he's advising that. And so now is Trudeau. Uh, Trudeau gave a speech, I think, yesterday or this morning, where he he in, you know he said international law needs to be respected, restraint needs to be engaged in. And uh, I mean, this is for, for for prime ministers and diplomats. This is quite strong language. What do you hope my listeners get out of the conversation we've been having for the past? Uh, 40 or so minutes, what's the most important point you want them to take in? And then how can my listeners keep up with your work? Okay, I've, I've got a vanity website called DirkMoses.com where I where I plop all my you know, latest writings, which are you know, every now and then. And I, I would like readers, uh, and as I do my students, to, to think about securitization processes, you know, that when our groups identified as threatening or potentially threatening. I mean, once you identify those kind of discourses by politicians and leaders, then you know trouble is brewing. Now, for, for a genocide to take place, you need two things. You need a racialization process, so where groups are identified as groups, a particular part of the population, and, and then securitized. So you need securitization and racialization. And once you get the two of those, then you have a genocidal conjunction. Just to add to that real briefly here, um, you know, I had someone say to me recently, I would bring up the rhetoric used by Netanyahu, where he invoked the biblical story of Amalek. You know, remember what Amalek did to you. I mean, he's basically saying we have to destroy these people before they destroy us. Yes. And someone said to me, well, I will worry about his rhetoric uh, when that kind of rhetoric turns into action. How do you respond to someone that says that? Yeah, I mean, look, well, the action is happening right now. I mean, there's so much of that genocidal rhetoric uh, floating around. People, you know, people are making catalogs of it, including the lawyers. Right? But it's also important to acknowledge that, and as I've seen quite a lot of Netanyahu in the press now, is that he's being advised by the government lawyers. He talks a very careful international law game when he's talking about hospitals and you know the various uh, uh, actions by the IDF, whether it's the the, you know, the the troops on the ground or whether it's missiles. He say. We avoid civilians. If they get in the way, this is regretful and it's always proportionate. So they're already thinking about, you know, possible prosecutions in the future and are now putting on the record their respect for international law. So that's important to bear that in mind. So you're getting a very, it's a very confused picture on, the, you know, to the Israeli public, he talks in these biblical tropes in Hebrew uh, because he knows they'll register. And then when he's speaking to the Western press, well, you know, it's this very moderate language of international law.
Thank you again, Dirk Moses, for coming on Parallaxes. I'm sorry I kept you so long. <laughs> okay, pleasure to talk, JJ. Uh, a noted actor and a recognizable face to all of you is saying, you know, it is about time. Fabio, of course, the uh, Italian-American actor, of course, very famous for being on so many book covers. I think okay, almost okay. 500 on, of them. Fabio, I don't think anyone holds that record. Normally a very nice-looking guy who doesn't like to get into nasty, ugly political fights. But Fabio <sighs> has had enough, get to the kind point. enough to join us now. Good to see you, Fabio. Thank you. Great seeing you. You know, it's been so long, you know, since I see you the last time. You yeah. look great. You look great. You know, you and I are about the same age. You look so much better, and it kills me. Um, but that, oh, I, don't want to get, I don't want this to be about my nosing. ego. I, I do want to talk to you, though, that what got you upset, Fabio? You were seeing and hearing a lot of, uh, you know, stuff coming out of these pro-Palestinian rallies, and something got your goat. I don't know what it was, but you said enough, and you ripped Hollywood as a result that it should do more. Explain. Yes. Yes, the world is on fire, okay? And also, you know, you don't have to look farther than our president. These people, they find so much pleasure to kill. These are worse, 10,000 10, times worse than a Nazi, you know? And also they, they advertise, they publicize, and they're so happy, hey, I killed 10 Jews, I did that. You know, it's like at least the Nazi, they kept it kind of quiet. These people, they put all over social media, they're so proud. You know, and they're very and, good. Uh, and they're very you know, good at you know, Fabio. Could I step back for this? And I'm, I'm, it's so good having you on. Uh, you're just speaking your mind, but one more time. These are worse, ten times, ten thousand times worse than a Nazi. You know, and also they they advertise, they publicize. They're so happy. Hey, I killed ten Jews. I did that. You know, it's like at least the Nazi they kept it kind of quiet. What you just heard was audio from a segment of Neil Cavuto's Fox News program in which he interviewed fashion model and apparently in the eyes of some noted Holocaust expert, Fabio. He's one of a number of people now that is pushing this argument that the Nazis were a little bit better. They're, they're better people, you know, than Hamas. Because at least they concealed their crimes. They were obviously ashamed of what they were doing. If you think that sounds crazy and that there may be other reasons like, I don't know, avoiding the possibility of war crimes tribunals down the line, well, I understand that and agree with you. You almost want to laugh at the ludicrousness of it. It is kind of disturbing though, and Fabio isn't the only one pushing this kind of argument. We're going to be joined in the segment to follow by Holocaust historian Dr. Waitman Bourne, who will explain the problems with this line of argumentation and how it does a disservice and even distorts Holocaust history. It really all should go without saying, but it needs to be said apparently. So with all that in mind, let's get right to it with Dr. Waitman Bourne. Welcome to Parallax News. I guess I'm very happy to be speaking with Dr. Waitman Bourne is a senior lecturer in history at Northumbria University in Newcastle uh, in the UK. And he was also previously the director of the Virginia Holocaust Museum in Richmond, Virginia. And he is a genocide scholar. And we're going to be talking today about some controversies that have arisen over you know, comparisons made between 
the Nazi Holocaust and what Hamas has done. A lot of people are saying things about, you know, well, were the Nazis actually better uh, than Hamas? Um, maybe to start out, Waitman, what's your initial thoughts on October uh, 7th and what happened and then some of the controversies that have come up since? Sure. Yeah. And thanks for having me. Um, so I think it, it goes without saying, but I, but in this environment, you have to say it, and it, it bears saying, I suppose, that, you know, what Hamas did uh, on October 7th, uh, you know, is is absolutely um, criminal. Um, it's it's a it's a mass atrocity of of sort of incredible violence, brutality against um, non-combatants and civilians, um, you know, with with all of the, the gruesome details that we've heard. And so there's there's absolutely no excusing that. Um, regardless of any, you know, historical uh, historical issues or background, um, you know, to the much much larger uh, Israeli Palestinian um, conflict, which I'm not going to get into in terms of sort of being an expert because I am not an expert on that history. Um, you know, my my entree into this topic of late is really the the fact that it seems like that Holocaust history is becoming yet another casualty of the, you know, Palestinian and Israeli um, conflict. So, you know, I, I think from when I've seen comparisons between the October 7th killings and the Nazis, which is already a very, very broad comparison because, um, you know, the Nazis murdered and oppressed Jews in a variety of different ways, different venues, um, different styles, if you will, um, different ways. So even that comparison is a little um, is a little forced, which is kind of what I felt about the whole thing. Um, you know, it, it, I would say, and I say this as a Holocaust historian, um, you know, things can be awful um, and, and unlawful and you know, horrendous without being compared to to the Holocaust. Um, and and I and I am someone, to be fair, who actually likes when people compare things to the Holocaust, assuming that they're coming from a, you know, a, a good faith position. Because I don't think that the Holocaust is something that is, um, sort of a mystery that is unexplainable and therefore placed above any kinds of comparison uh, because it, it seems to me that part of the never again um you know admonition or whatnot is that we have to be able to compare things and see similarities and differences between this event and and um, current events so you know I, I think clearly october 7th you know um is an, is an absolute outrage and clearly you know the hamas fighters that did that um the terrorists that did that need to be brought to justice in, in one way or another, either, you know, by being killed in combat or by, you know, being being tried for their war crimes, because it is absolutely a war crime mass atrocity. So I would start there, you know, with with an understanding that this discussion about comparing Hamas to the Nazis um, in no way, no matter where it goes, is not excusing anything that, that Hamas has done. So then in regards to some of the comparisons that have been made, I've seen people say, you know, the the SS troops were troubled by what they were doing 
Whereas, you know, Hamas committed these crimes and and, and we're gleeful about it. Um, what do you make of these sort of points that people are bringing up? Yeah, so I, I think it probably is, is, is useful to maybe trace where I think at least this argument is ultimately going. And, and it, it seems like Real quick, by the way, too, yes, is it is there we can get into this later, yeah. but is there ways in which this argument that people are making can smuggle in very bad ideas to uh, the mainstream? So, I, I mean, things like the clean Wehrmacht theory can does this have the potential for that? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. I mean, this is I, I think I think that and we'll talk about this, you know, the, the ways in which the Nazi and the kill, Nazi killers in particular are described is 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 a form of Holocaust distortion um, because it it is it is minimizing in some ways um, the sort of severity and the guilt you know of the perpetrators and so I, I think you know that's from an from an historical perspective and from a position of a, of a Holocaust historian um, you know it's it's added an additional level of noise. Uh, out there in the public because it's been sort of um it's been communicated by some people with some very large microphones um and so now that's something that we have to deal with you know people are talking about this um and they they don't need to be because it's it's not historical it's not historically accurate um but i mean i think if, if we get back to sort of where where i think this is why we're talking about this and then we can talk maybe about the history and why this sort of characterization, I think, is is a wrong and 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 b sort of deeply unhelpful. It seems like that the the argument is running that Hamas, particularly Hamas, on October seventh and their actions, um, their criminal actions there, is is in some ways worse than the Nazis. And then the evidence for that is is the the brutality of the crime and the and the publication uh, of the. Um, of the crimes and their apparent, you know, sort of glee in doing it. Um, but ultimately it seems to be going down this road of Hamas is worse than the Nazis. Um, therefore, basically anything, any kind of actions or retaliations or revenge is, is somehow authorized, um, you know, which, which speaks to the, the challenges that Israel has in fighting in an urban environment um, and abiding by you know the laws of armed conflict in those areas, and so I, I and I'm not going to get into I'm not going into that, um, you know, because I one thing that I've noted you know over the past month or so is that I have a very hard time knowing really what is true and not true coming out of coming off the ground in in that area. But, we don't uh, have to get into yeah. it, but I do yeah, want to yeah. say this. I, I mean, I am concerned at this point. When you have people making this Nazi Hamas comparison, um, I mean, we currently have uh, in in the state I'm in right now, Florida, we just had a um, congresswoman, uh, Michelle Salzman, uh, come out and say uh, when asked, you know, how many dead Palestinians, she said, well, all of them, mm. they just they yeah, all yeah, deserve absolutely. to die. I mean, th yeah. there is I, I, we don't have to get into the whole issue with Palestinians, but I think this could be used for justification for things that. Uh, could end up being dangerous if if taken. No, I mean, a hundred percent. I think, and I, I think you know, Omer Omer Bartov, a very famous um, Holocaust historian and an Israeli American, uh, also IDF veteran, you know, has basically said when it, when it 
you know, he's, he's not certain that genocide is taking place at the moment. Um, but certainly there is genocidal rhetoric that's being thrown around. Um, and it's, it's quite likely that there are, you know, what we might consider to be war crimes uh, or even crimes against humanity taking place. And so I think you're right in pulling, and I, I noted that, that comment as well. Um, you know, that is obviously, you know, sort of a deeply problematic and, and it demonstrates sort of genocidal intent. Um, and, and I think part of it is potentially, you know, the idea is that because we have um, Jews as the victim of October 7th, um, if you paint Hamas as the Nazis, you know, you're, you're invoking this, a sort of, you know, 80 year old revenge um, fantasy in some sorts of ways um, that, that therefore justifies anything. Right. Um, because in this, in this scenario, you have a, a Jewish state that has the capability to take revenge against Nazis in, in a way that, that Holocaust survivors didn't um, or, or Jews during the Holocaust didn't. But, you know, I, I'm not going to I don't want to get into sort of adjudicating because it's just so it's just so difficult with what's going on. But I, I, I only mentioned that because I think I think that behind this rhetoric about whether or not Hamas is worse than the Nazis um, are some very problematic goals in terms of what the, the so what, you know, if, if we accept that, uh, you know, Hamas is worse than the Nazis, whatever that means, you know, why? Because the people that are making these arguments aren't making them, you know, just out of intellectual academic interest, right? There is a, there is a therefore, you know, at the end of that. And I think that therefore, you know, it bears consideration. Um, but the, the, you know, to, to get to some of the, some of the argument, the specifics, and so where, where they differ from history. I mean, first and foremost, I, I, I think that the, the comparison is it's just a little general and, and not not particularly enlightening. Um, in both scenarios, you have a group of people who are anti-Semitic, um, who have their mission to kill Jews, um, and they do it, uh, Jewish women and children and civilians, and they do it in, in particularly sort of gratuitous ways. Um, beyond that, I think there are some significant differences um, that that speak to this other part of reluctance and the publicity piece. Um, first and foremost is that the Nazi killers are serving essentially as official arms of an entire state system and state apparatus of a sort of modern nation state um, where the policy of murdering Jews has been raised and accepted as government policy and is more or less generally accepted um, by the population as, as something that needs to be done, whether or not every German knew the details about what was happening. Um, they certainly knew that Jews were disappearing from their streets and that the Nazi rhetoric for years and years and years had been saying that, that you know, they were going to solve this Jewish question. Um, so, the Nazis don't have a particularly burning need to publicize what they're doing. Whereas, um, whereas Hamas is an insurgent group. Well, I mean, you know, I, my understanding of, of Hamas's goals, at least I, I, there was a Washington post piece about this, but you know, that, that they are trying to 
essentially burn bridges uh, to reconciliation and to create a sort of endless high stakes uh, conflict with Israel. Um, and and that the 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 murder of these of these women and children and and civilians and and, and taking of hostages is part of is part of the mission to you know do things that are so awful um that they therefore incite israel to you know potentially commit excesses on the other side of things which then generates support for uh for hamas amongst the arab world etc cetera, etc cetera. and so you know they have a very vested interest in making what they've done as public as possible because they are attempting to generate um public outrage and or support uh you know for their cause based on whatever the, the sort of reactions are so I, I think that focusing on whether or not the nazis as uh, someone on twitter mentioned to me you know well, why didn't they publish in the headlines in the newspaper about auschwitz well you know they, they don't need to um i also think you know it's obvious that part of the the final solution um was deception it was deceiving Jews into the fact that, you know, they were being deported for to someplace else or for work camps or or whatever in the East. Um, so it was simply not practical or to sort of explain exactly what's happening to them. That would have made the task harder. Um, and also, you know, I assume it would have been great propaganda for the allies if this was more yes, well known. Absolutely. And that's a great point, too. And and the Nazis are, are very, very cognizant of this. They're 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 they are monitoring the Western press, you know, to the extent that um, there's a moment where I'm forgetting exactly who it was, you know, Himmler Heydrich or um, Galuga, who is the head of the, the police, you know, they pick up that uh, Rabbi Stephen Wise in the United States is, is quoting, you know, reports of mass killings in Eastern Europe. And the Nazis are concerned about this because of its potential propaganda value. But not as as some of the implication from some of these talking heads is that it's not because they are ashamed of what they're doing, um, or or sort of think what they're doing deep down is wrong. Um, but they are also they're not idiots, and they they are familiar with you know the potential propaganda value you know of of exposing this. Um, and even then, you know uh, the some of the commentators have focused a lot on sort of the shooters, right? Um, the Einsatzgruppen killers, the, the police battalion killers. Um, and of course that is, you know, two to two and a half million out of the, out of the 6 million. Um, and, and is an important, very important part. I wrote about that. Um, but obviously we also have the extermination centers, which is a whole different way of killing. Um, but in the, in the context of those, those shooters, um, you know, it, it was public. It was absolutely public. Um, the, the difference only was that it was in Eastern Europe and and nobody, you know, really had access to Eastern Europe. But, you know, these people are murdered in, in the sometimes in the Jewish cemetery in town, sometimes just outside of town. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of witnesses of what's going on. Um, there are German soldiers just passing through who go to visit these sites and watch people get killed and write home about it where they go home and they tell their families about it. And so there's very much a, a kind of an informal network that informs uh, German society about this. So even then it's not particularly, it's not hidden. It's just not 
particularly accessible to the rest of the world. Um, and then even in the context of the extermination centers, there's, and I mentioned this, I think on Twitter, but you know, you have SS photographers at Auschwitz that are taking official photography, uh, making a, a an official photo album uh, that, that follows a transport of Jews from arrival to, to death in the gas chambers, you know, meant to give to somebody. Uh, you have Jürgen Stroop, after putting down the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, publishing a big old report, uh, proudly proclaiming that, you know, the ghetto is no more and the Jews are all gone. And likewise, there's a guy named Kotzman who's doing that as well. Um, you know, so again, I think it's a it's a bit of a false dichotomy and a false comparison to say that, you know, the Nazis didn't publicize in the way that Hamas is. Um, and also, it's it's a bit of a historical inaction anyway, because they did, to a certain extent, publicize. And, um, you know, and, and there was a there was a recognition that what they were doing would certainly not be viewed positively by the allies and and may not be viewed positively by some of the german population not so much out of a a, a deep moral opposition but more out of a sort of disgust for the fact that you're doing this kind of thing and so you get um himmler in 1943 gives a speech to some very high-ranking ss men um, in Posen in October 43, where he says, you know, you all know what it was like, what it's been like to stand in a grave full of hundreds or thousands of, of bodies. Um, and, you know, this is a, the greatest, uh, most glorious page in our history that will never be written. Um, and some of the commentators that are that are sort of propagating this this weird apologetic um, tone for Nazis have suggested that that you know, they focus on the never to be written part rather than the page of glory part. You know, I mean, like the page of glory suggests precisely that the Nazis, um, particularly the leadership, is is very happy with what they're doing and, and very gleeful and very proud of what they've done. Um, they're essentially, it sounds like, making the argument that, well, the Nazis had a, a very deep and secret shame about all of this. And that's yes. why they tried to conceal it after the war. Whereas my immediate response to that was, I think they concealed it after the war because they were afraid of war crimes. Yeah, back. absolutely. I mean, you know, they, they, the, first of all, you know, and this, this gets to very sort of basic practical historical issues, but, you know, the, the Nazis are burning bodies in the extermination centers you know, using the crematoria, not to destroy the evidence, really, but simply because they're killing so many people that they have to, it's just, it's just unhygienic. And it's, um, the logistic, it's logistically impossible to bury all of them. So there it's, a, it's just a, a very practical reason. It's not a, it's not an evidence destruction reason. And, um, and, you know, the, the initial sort of closing of grave sites of, of these mass shooters is a very sort of haphazard affair. I mean, people talk about, you know, their limbs sticking out and, you know, it's not particularly, you know, it's not particularly sort of assiduously done until 1943 when they go back and begin digging up and, and burning the bodies to really destroy the evidence. But again, this is as a result of the turning tides of war um, where the Nazis realize that very shortly the Soviets are going to be occupying this terrain and if they're not careful they're going to come across you know all of these all these mass grave sites 
And so I think, you know, you're 100% correct that the the primary 99% reason that they're destroying the evidence is that they don't want to leave any evidence. It's not that they are ashamed of what they've done um, or are particularly worried about what anybody thinks about it unless that means that they're going to get tried for war crimes. Um, you know, Adolf Eichmann famously says very near the end of the war that he'll happen, he'll leap into his grave happy knowing that he's contributed to the the wiping out of, of Jews in Europe. Uh, you know, so I think uh, the Nazis are, are certainly as, as a, as an organization quite happy um, and, and quite, and quite proud of what they're doing. Um, and I suppose this, the same way that, that some of these Hamas um, killers appear to be. Um, and, 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 you know, the other, the other element is that, that, that some people have cited is, is they've, they've said, well, you know, a lot of these men had to drink alcohol or, um, you know, they, they, they appeared to be sort of upset. Um, You're talking about the actual soldiers that committed the, the killings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, and, and they're right. Absolutely right. You know, and I've, I've come across this in, in my work and, it, and lots of other historians have come across this. It's absolutely true. Um, many, many of these men suffered what we would consider today something called something similar to PTSD um, as a result of participating in these shootings, right? Um, and I, I think but, people need to understand that with the shootings because, I, I mean, I think people forget that a large, pers- a, a, a decent chunk of the victims, I mean, these are people to my understanding, and I'm not a Holocaust historian, I mean, these were soldiers shooting them behind the back of the head and whatnot. Um, which may be one reason that, you know, the, the extermination camps are made um, with the Zyklon B, because I'm, I think it's very hard for people to just keep shooting people like that. I mean, there probably is a trauma with that is what I'm getting at. Absolutely. I mean, and and, and it, it also follows from a, a simple fact that is, that is difficult for some people, I think, to swallow if they're of the sort of Nazis are all evil monsters kind of um, kind of mindset which is that most Germans and, and therefore most Nazis are not, were not psychologically abnormal. Uh, they weren't sociopaths. You know, they weren't, they weren't someone who literally is incapable of, of experiencing empathy or imagining, you know, what another person is feeling. Right. And so, yes, you're absolutely right. When, when someone is doing October 7th every day for months on end, uh, you know, and and literally, you know, at night leaving the leaving the shooting site with brain matter and blood on their on their uniform because they're so close, and also experiencing everything else that goes along with murdering people at that at that close range, you know, it is deeply troubling um, to a lot of these people, and they they use alcohol to to sort of soothe that. But yeah, I was going to say, I feel like there's a however coming in now. <laughs> but uh, and this is what what you know browning mentions in 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 ordinary men that is a, a this is is this christopher browning we're talking christopher about Browning, yeah and, and he's a very famous uh holocaust historian for people that are unfamiliar go on yeah and, and 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 his book has been used misused by some of these commentators as evidence because he talks about what i just mentioned the the, the sort of psychological trauma that some of these men experience um but and the big but is that despite all of that, 
the majority of these guys find a way to keep doing it. Um, they don't stop. Um, you know, some of them are doing it, you know, out of peer pressure and then sort of social psychological reasons. Um, but others, you know, basically do the mental gymnastics to ultimately decide that what they're doing is right. And so there's an example that, that Chris mentioned to me um, many years ago of a, a guy who was in one of these police battalions and he, uh, he was kind of a photographer, a hobbyist photographer. And we have a sort of series of letters from him over time. And in the first you know, se several letters, he's sort of very upset and he's like, what, this is awful. What are we doing? Um, but by the end of the series of letters, he's sending pictures home and saying, you know, one day we'll, we'll, we'll gather on the kitchen table and we'll show our daughter, you know, what I did in the East to like murder these Jews. Right. So, um, and, and even further, you know, another element, another point that I should make, I suppose, is that, you know, Heinrich Himmler visited a mass shooting in Minsk in August, 1941. Um, and he got visibly by all accounts, visibly ill and was upset by it. Um, a guy named uh, Eric von den Boxelewski, who was uh, the higher SS and police leader for what is now Belarus and presided over the murder of, of the Jews there, um, was sort of medically uh, transferred back to the rear because he had um, he had hemorrhoids. But in his chart, his physician notes that he has uh, flashbacks, nightmares um, related to his being at slash participating in mass shootings. And you'd be hard pressed to suggest that either one of those individuals, uh, you know, was a, a deep down reluctant Nazi who didn't think that, that Jews should actually be killed. I mean, so you can have these, these reactions, um, but they don't by any stretch necessarily indicate a, a moral opposition. I think about the, the example that I've used is sort of, you know, I would, if I had a choice, I'd prefer not to have to slaughter a cow um, and clean it to get a hamburger. Um, but in no way does that mean that I won't eat hamburgers, right? I mean, I, it's, it's, but I, would, I wouldn't like it if I had to kill the cow. I, I would probably find that distasteful and it would not be my something I'd like to do. Um, but that doesn't mean I'm against eating meat. Um, you know, and then that's kind of the, you know, that, that may seem trite, but I think it actually speaks quite, quite well to this idea that, you know, just because someone has an emotional reaction to murdering, you know, naked old people, women, pregnant women, children, uh, doesn't necessarily mean that they have a, a moral or ideological opposition to the overall project, right? In fact, it's quite human that one would be upset by those things, even if one thinks that those things are correct. Um, and this is something that that Himmler and others bring up all the time. And it's a really weird, a sort of weird reverse victimization where the Nazis themselves see themselves as the victims. You know, we, we are this great civilized, you know, sensitive people. And it's really hard for us to have to do this sort of despicable task of, of killing people. Well, they, but that my, my understanding is they sort of see themselves as the victims and well you have to understand we're we're being menaced by this uh, you know they would use the term i guess a uh, judeo-bolshevik menace and you know they would present this as their existential crisis and they had to do this as a result 
is their sort of, you know, the picture they try to paint. Yeah. I mean, and, 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 and it, you know, when they're, when they're murdering what we would call sort of military aged men, you know, that has one love that has sort of one threshold of believability because they can say, well, these are, you know, these are people that could be partisans or they could take arms against us, et cetera, et cetera. But you need a different argument if you're murdering, you know, children. And so then the argument becomes, well, we have to kill the children because they would grow up to be people who want to avenge the fact that we've killed their parents, et cetera. Right. Um, and so there's, there's a, there's a sort of series of justifications, even down to the individual level. There's a, a guy, and I think he was in, I think, I think Chris talks about him in ordinary men um, who would only shoot children. That was his sort of, he would only shoot children. And the way he justified it was that, well, my, my buddy next to me has shot the parents and this child can't live without its parents. So I'm sort of performing some kind of act of mercy um, by, by putting them out of their misery. So again, there's this, you know, it, it's a very sort of self-serving set of mental gymnastics exercises to wrap, because the, it's much harder for these men to change physically what they're doing than it is for them to change what they think about it. It's another one of the, uh, I've always heard that figures like um, Otto Scorzini after the war would always just say, well, I was just being a patriot. You know, that seems to be another part of the mental gymnastics. Well, there there is that. I mean, there, and certainly for the, for the camp SS, you know, if we talk about the people that are in the concentration camps and in the extermination centers, you know, they like to think that they were also on the front lines of the war just a different kind of war. Uh, you know, they were they were fighting the war against the Jews and the army is fighting the war against, you know, the Soviets or the Americans, or the British or whatever. Um, you know, and there's there's some there's some self-serving in there, too, probably about, you know, the fact that they're trying to justify why they are having sort of relatively cushy, safe existence while these other people are, are you know, engaged in actual combat. But, yeah, I mean, they for the for many of these men, they believed that, you know, what we're doing is right. Um, you know, and, and I am, you know, what I'm doing is right, whether I'm in the concentration camp or, um, one of these killers, you know, and, and so the, the attempt to sort of paint on top of these people, this image of, well, you know, say what you want about, about Hamas, but the Nazis at least weren't joyful, I, I think is, is, is a distortion. Um, you know, there are, there are plenty, plenty of examples of Nazis doing horrendous things. That indicate- I wanted you to talk about that. I think you wrote a, a whole book about this, uh, about the um, Janowska yeah, so camp. I, but I, I just finished a book on a place called Janowska, which is in Lviv, Ukraine, and it was a, a Nazi concentration camp. And this is the book Between the Wires, if people want to look it up. Yes. Yeah, coming out in, uh, in next summer. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, the, met, the, the many, many, many of the SS men in the camp are devising incredibly ingenious, imaginative ways to torture and kill Jews. Um, that that certainly, at a minimum, suggests that not only are they not perturbed by the, you know, physical reactions that one might have from murdering people, but they're they're quite happy. It's a game for many of them. You know, one of the one of the things they would do is they would have a, a prisoner 
you know, hold up a coin or something and they try to shoot it out of their hand. And, and often they would kill them or they would, you know, um, tie someone to a stake and, and try to shoot various body parts, you know, and these kinds of things and, and, and many, many other things that are, that are even more grotesque. Um, and then this is not, this is not particularly um, out of the ordinary for lots of places, you know? And so, you know, it, if if we're taking the this this false premise that the Nazis are basically reluctant deep down to do this, then you would imagine that you. Would I mean, see they wouldn't be turning uh, the killings into a game. You know, that's right. sort of taking joy in torture and murder. Right. Yeah. I mean, you you would imagine that they would be trying to just do the bare minimum they had to do, um, and and to avoid as much as possible any of this, you know, extra extra stuff. I mean, in in this case, in Yanoska, the the commandant's wife would sit on the balcony of the villa and shoot prisoners for fun, you know, and, and that there can be no other reason for that other than that she was enjoying what she was doing because she has no reason, no obligation to do any of this. Um, so, I mean, and I, I've sort of belabored the point, I think um, it, we've probably beaten it to death, but, you know, the bottom line is that the Nazis are not, are not reluctant overall, uh, certainly not morally reluctant, um, which is the implication I think that's being made, or at least the 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 conclusion that many people are drawing from this. They're not morally reluctant. Uh, many of them aren't even reluctant, and particularly when you get to when you get to the extermination centers rather than the killing sites, rather than the the shooting, you know, there's not even the the sort of trauma for the killers because they're just walking across the top of the gas chamber and and dropping in um, the pellets or they're turning the gas on in the case of uh, places that are using carbon monoxide. They're making the prisoners do all of the really nasty, dirty work of, of removing bodies and burning bodies and all that kind of stuff, you know? And so it, it, it nobody is resort is particularly reluctant there. If you can stay on for a few extra minutes, I had a sure. maybe one or two more questions. Uh, I mentioned sure. earlier this idea of the clean Wehrmacht. If people don't know what that is, could you explain it? Because I, I know you've given a lecture on this. Um, I think it was called Killing the Clean Wehrmacht. But right. uh, could you explain what that myth is? Yeah. So, I mean, there, there's a, you know, after the war, um, the German army, the Wehrmacht, um, is they escape the official censure of Nuremberg, which where at Nuremberg, they basically say, Anyone who is a member of the SS is by definition was a member of a criminal organization. They don't say that about the Wehrmacht. And so the Wehrmacht says, you know, well, all we were doing during the war was fighting the Russians and the Americans, et cetera, defending Germany in a sort of conventional uh, standard war. Uh, we had nothing to do with the Nazis. We had nothing to do with the SS. We had nothing to do with the Holocaust. That was all the sort of the, the SS, the bad guys, uh, we were we were just sort of honorable soldiers fighting, fighting for our country, as it were. Um, and then this is propagated after the war, both uh, by the Germans themselves, by the generals themselves. You know, we the Americans in particular um, bring a bunch of these guys over to the United States to try to ask them, you know, what is it like to fight the Soviets? And we let them write their memoirs. Um, and so you get these very sanitized descriptions of the war in the East, for example, which was a deeply genocidal war, um, where they obviously leave out 
all the ways in which the Wehrmacht is deeply complicit in the Holocaust um, as perpetrators, you know, as enablers, as active shooters. Um, and so then this, uh, this snowballs over time, you know, and then, and then you get the phenomenon, you know, up until the 90s where it really started getting combated by historians with the this thing called the Wehrmacht uh, exhibition, which was an exhibition that traveled around Germany showing just incontrovertible evidence of, of not only the Wehrmacht's participation in the Holocaust and other kinds of other forms of genocide, um, but, you know, photographs and letters from soldiers, you know, things that are just really, really difficult to explain away. Um, but until the, up until then, you know, there was this idea that, well, you know, the German army uh, didn't really, wasn't really tainted with the, the brush of the Nazis. Um, whereas, of course, it, it is. Um, and that has been a myth that, you know, has continued for quite some time. And, and sort of you can still see, you can still see evidence of it today where people don't really want to admit that, you know, this was an army that was fighting to advance the policies of a genocidal white supremacist state, right? Not everybody that was in it, you know, was was a, a deeply ideological Nazi. You know, many, some of them were opposed, but as an organization, um, you know, it is it is in many ways just as complicit as, as lots of others in, in the Nazi genocidal project. And there's also actual reports we can look at where you have, you know, SS leaders and, and other leaders within the Reich saying, you know, oh, we, 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 we've freed Estonia of the Jews or, you know, we've killed almost uh, 500,000 Jews here. So we have documentation of all this. Yeah, I mean, there's there are various, you know, various levels of this, right? Because it it's true that, you know, the German the German press isn't publishing you know, that we are murdering all these people in Eastern Europe. Um, but, you know, certainly as, at an organizational level, if you're any any level of sort of responsibility in the German government, you know what's going on. Um, and then, you know, the, the, the Wehrmacht itself is a vehicle for conveying information about this because, you know, these killings, particularly in Eastern Europe, are taking place, you know, in the rear areas where there are lots of soldiers. And these soldiers go home on leave, they write letters, and they share the information about what they've seen. They take pictures, lots of pictures of, of these things, you know. And so there is a informal, but I think very extensive sort of network of information that flows that flows to the rear area, to flows to the to the home front. And you know, people know about these things. Real quick as well, uh, on the misuse of Christopher Browning, what, what is the major point you want people to get out of what Browning's point was and how that's being distorted? Yes, I mean, what what Chris is arguing, first of all, he, he takes a group of people who one might consider to be sort of the least likely to be Nazi killers. Uh, you know, they are reservists. They are middle-aged men with families uh, living in Hamburg, which is, is certainly not the most nazi nazified city in germany um you know they they and then they're they're sort of conscripted to go to the to the east and participate you know in the holocaust these are not men that particularly have any kind of ambition in the nazi state they already have jobs to go back to um so they lack 
almost all of the motivations that we might subscribe might ascribe to some of these Nazi killers. And um, what Browning is interested in is is if these people are able to continue to sort of be killers, why? Why? What? What is the? What is the sort of um, functions? The, what are the functions behind that that are make that make this possible? Um, and and he he comes upon he comes to the conclusion that you know it's it's really for the for this group of people it's really you know the the social psychological pressures of being in a group of of comrades as it were um in some ways more than it is a rabid jew hate or rabid anti-semitism or you know fervent sort of ideological fanatical agreement with the regime um but that being said, there are those people um, in the unit, and there are people who become those people. Um, there's an example: uh, one of the lieutenant, one of the the commanders, brings his wife with him uh, to a, a ghetto roundup where the Jews are being sent to Treblinka, um, in which there's lots and lots of violence, people being shot all over the place, and he's 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 proud. He, he wants to show his wife what he's doing, his fiance what he's doing. There's another example. Um, with a different officer and his wife where they're having lunch someplace, you know, in Poland. And one of the policemen comes up and says, sir, I have not yet had my breakfast. And, you know, the, the officer is kind of like, what, what do you, why are you telling me this? And he goes, I haven't killed any Jews yet today. So I haven't had my breakfast. Right. So, I mean, what Browning shows is yes, there is reluctance, but that most of the men overcome this reluctance to be absolutely efficient killers and and they don't they even though in the very first killing so from the very beginning the unit commander has made it clear if you don't want to do this you don't have to um even though that that is is explicit and obvious most of the men don't take advantage of it and they they do it anyway um so to to take to take his descriptions of some of these men's reluctance to kill and say that that means that most Nazis are reluctant to kill is both missing the point that it doesn't really matter in some ways whether they're reluctant or not because they did it anyway. Um, and also is in many ways missing the point that many of these men changed their belief system to accommodate and to go around that reluctance and make them make it more comfortable uh, for them to murder people. The last thing I want to ask you about, and you know what, if you don't want to comment on it, you don't have to, because <laughs> I really, you're, you're a historian, but I do want to comment. One of the main people that has been pushing this, you know, we have, you know, the, the Nazis are actually better than Hamas is this figure, uh, Douglas Murray. And, you know, Douglas Murray is not a historian. I believe he graduated uh, with an English degree. Um, and I think he is an ideologue. He's very associated with being anti-immigrant, um, you know, critical of Islam as a whole. Uh, people have accused him of pushing the great replacement conspiracy theory of the far right fame. Uh, do you think there are, you don't even have to comment on, on Murray specifically if you don't want to, but I feel like there are 
people with an ideological axe to grind that are picking up these talking points. Oh, absolutely. I think that's 100% correct. I think the I think that a lot of the people who who take this this tact um they they they're they're doing it not out of a sort of genuine you know outrage on the behalf of Jews um because many of them aren't Jewish anyway. Um they're not doing it out of a, a necessarily even out of a sort of fervent support for Israel, but more so um, because it justifies in their minds. Well, it, it in their minds it does. I suppose it does two things. It it reinforces pre-existing um, racist and, and prejudicial notions about Muslim people and and sort of their 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 character or whatnot. You know, it's, these, it's these the West first, of, the rest, the clash of civilizations. You know, well, I mean, you know, this is the Islamophobic idea, right? That 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 Muslims are somehow sort of uniquely vicious and violent and and you know fanatical, um, and so you know, portraying them as worse than the Nazis, you know, sort of confirms for for I think for a lot of these people confirms pre-existing notions, um, pre-existing Islamophobic notions about about those people. And then I think the 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 unsaid but but very very obvious sort of implication is therefore they don't deserve uh, the same protections that we afford to other groups of people according to the law of armed conflict and you know international humanitarian law. Well, yeah, because yeah. I mean the logic is they're savages; they don't deserve human rights yeah i mean i think i think that's certainly what the what the this argument is about um ultimately right because it, you know it, as as i said you you absolutely don't have to hand it to the nazis right there there's there's no reason that you need to to say to prove whether i mean it, it, it's a i i refer to this as sort of the suffering olympics you know the 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 people that were murdered um innocent people that were murdered on october 7th are just as dead, you know, whether Hamas did it um, and were worse than Nazis or not worse than the Nazis. You know, it, it, the, the crime is, is is what it is, regardless. Um, and and I, I doubt that they would be they would much rather be alive than, you know, be be examples of, of why one group is sort of worse than the Nazis. Um, and, you know. We're talking about, you know, when people are talking about the Nazis, again, I tried to make this point. And this is in no way an excuse or an apology for for Hamas, um, but October seventh was was you know one day, and the Nazis did October seventh every day, all across Eastern Europe. Um, you know whether or not they were gleefully doing it all the time, you know they certainly were were doing it at a magnitude that that far exceeds um, that far exceeds what what Hamas has done so far. Now Hamas also. I think is clearly expressing genocidal rhetoric as well. Um, you know, but I think the people that are using that are that are making this argument, many of them, it's 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 a way to villainize, vilify, sorry, to vilify the vilify Muslims, vilify Hamas. Um well Hamas, I mean Hamas are villains, but it no one's gonna argue. But it's it's the Palestinians are getting that are it's the it's broadening out to the Palestinians. That's that's the issue, I think. It's a way to villainize Palestinians as a whole. You know, it's not yeah. it's like it's going beyond we're just attacking Hamas as the villain. It's Palestinians as a whole are like a problem. And I 
what I wanted to end on was, um, do you have any opinions on that Jewish Chronicle piece? And and why do you think it is that people are paying attention to what an English graduate has to say that does political commentary on, you know, social justice warriors or whatever he's calling it rather than a historian? Because I, I find it frustrating that people are putting so much stock into it. Well, I mean, I think, you know, it's 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 an artifact of a moment, right? Um, and 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 this person is a, is a reporter in, in some ways and and has a large platform, um, you know. And I think that you know it, it's a moment where people there are many people who are angry, um, are upset, um, in many ways rightly so, certainly at Hamas um, and. You know, there are there are people looking for justifications to sort of express that anger. Um, and I think that that the, this sort of Nazi comparison is is one because it's interesting. I've seen I've seen rabbis sort of on uh, rabbis on Twitter have have sort of condoned this as well. And it's, it's very weird to see someone that you might assume would would take no stock in 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 doing anything to kind of uh, minimize or excuse Nazi killing, um, but it, as I said, and that's why I I sort of tried to highlight this. I think at the beginning is it it becomes a it's a vehicle. Um, I think it's it's less about having a really, you know, earnest conversation about comparative history and the Holocaust, and is more a, a vehicle for packaging. Um, some in some ways Islamophobia and in other ways just anger at at Hamas and at the Palestinians. Um, but you know, and I just want to highlight this as well: the intent behind this for any of these people uh, that are that are sort of um, you know spreading this idea is really immaterial because whether or not they intend to distort the Holocaust or to um, you know make apology for for Nazis. It, that's what they're doing and people are consuming this. And so, you know, from, from my perspective as a Holocaust historian, you know, this is the, this is what I'm most in some ways concerned about because that's in my world where people are, this, this is, this is now a, it's now an option, right. That's out there for people to think about and believe just like when, you know, Netanyahu um, in 2015, I think he said that uh, Hitler got the idea for murdering the Jews from the Grand Mufti of, of Jerusalem which is absolutely 100% historically incorrect. But now that's an idea that's out there floating around that we have to engage with, that we didn't really have to engage with before. I've, I've had people mention that on my show before. What was, what was the connection with the Grand Mufti? I've never understood. Well, I mean, the, 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 the Grand Mufti was, was a raging anti-Semite and, and, and wanted to kill Jews. Absolutely. He's not a nice human being. Um, and you know, had the Nazis gotten to Jerusalem, uh, you know, we we would have seen similar scenes that we did in Poland, right, uh, of murdering the Jews. And of course, Hitler and the Nazis are are quite happy to, you know, pat him on the back and and have him as an ally because he he also is a rabid anti-Semite and hates Jews. But you know, by the time he actually meets Hitler. In November, I think it's November in November of 41, 
the the decision has been made. I mean, the the extermination centers are already being built, and the Holocaust by bullets has been going on in Eastern Europe for five months already. So, so, so in know, other words, the Grand Mufti wasn't the the, the no. secret puppet master. No, behind, no, yeah. I didn't, the, the Nazis didn't need need uh, an imam from Jerusalem to to tell them to kill the Jews. They they'd come to that conclusion all by themselves. Last thing, promise to let you go after this, and I know I've kept you long. I, I feel bad for that, but uh, no, no, this fine. tends to happen sometimes. Is there a potential for these kind of arguments to be a Trojan horse for, I would say, really dangerous developments? So right, right now in the U.S. here, I have seen right-wing media figures like Charlie Kirk like Tucker Carlson, like Elon Musk, saying, well, it's true, you know, Jewish uh, billionaires have funded, you know, uh, anti-white, blah, 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 blah. I feel like trying to do Nazi apologia is really a Trojan horse that people need to look out for because it's going to play a role in, I would say, trying to reinvigorate anti-Semitism, especially on the right wing. Well, I, th- I think so. I mean, I, and uh, something that we haven't mentioned, you know, is the uh, the response this has had in Germany. And in Germany, you've had there there have been several relatively high ranking government officials who have also condoned this, um, you know, which I think speaks to a broader memory problem in Germany, which is that, you know, the, the, most Germans, by and large, are, are are quite comfortable and and okay with saying you know that, that Nazi Germany was a bad thing and we're responsible for that, um, and you know we're responsible for the Holocaust, but not my family, um, and so it's 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 much more comfortable to view, you know, the Nazis as as these sort of tortured, conflicted people, um, the killers, I mean, um, and it's not a far leap from they were these tortured, conflicted killers to they only did it because they were forced to. Which brings us all the way back to the sort of obedience to orders thing. Um, I think I think you're right about the right wing um, and and anti-Semitism as well. Because I, I, I by don't... the way, I realize there's talk of of left wing anti-Semitism. I'm not trying to downplay that, but no, no, yeah, uh, I, of course. I mean, but I, I think I think that there are many people who are on the right wing who are supporting Israel. But bear Jews absolutely no no goodwill. <laughs> John uh, Hagee, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean Hagee's one, but I think a lot of these people, you know, it's 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 a it's a vehicle for expressing anti-Muslim sentiment, um, but it doesn't signify a great love, uh, you know, of Israel. And you know, you you could see you could see this in some other formulation coming back later on. Again, it. It's it's the pernicious element of if this takes if this takes hold as one acceptable in explanation for Nazi behavior, it's already done anti-Semitic work, I think, because it's minimizing the Holocaust and it's minimizing uh, the terror and the oppression that Jews suffered during the Holocaust by saying, well, you know, the, the Nazis really weren't that into it. And, you know, they were they were reluctant, you know, which then. Which there, there are lots of other sort of apologetic and distorting arguments that can follow on from that. Um, if we if we take that as sort of the 
the the baseline characterization of Nazi killers. Um, you know, and so I, as I said, I think I think that in some ways Israel is just serving as a vehicle right now uh, for some people on the right who who had their minds made up about Islam and Muslims, you know, long before this, and are just happy they can now in some ways express things they've always thought um, in a in a much more permissive environment because there is this right as i said right rightful anger around the world at what hamas has done well hey uh waitman born i want to thank you again for coming on parallax views how can my listeners keep up with your work anything you want to plug uh no i'm on i'm on twitter uh for for you know until it turns into a complete uh cesspool um at waitman it's getting on twitter. pretty close <laughs> yeah it's, it's it's that's why i'm also on blue sky as well so um I, I can be found on there if you have a if you have an invite. I'm I'm doing more things over there. Um, you, you know, since I, you I, mentioned I, the Twitter is a cesspool thing, are are you worried as someone that studied uh, the Holocaust that we're seeing, you know, I mean we're seeing far right wing movements around the world, uh, white nationalism. Do you think that's there's a potential for that to make a much bigger impact on the world and a, a sort of revival? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, I, I don't want to, on the one hand, you know, I, I like Twitter and I've, I've been on it for a while and I've been very active on it and I don't, but I don't want to oversell Twitter either. You know, I mean, it, anti-Semitism has predated Twitter and it will continue after whatever happens to Twitter. Um, And it, and Twitter is not, is not required for, for us to have, you know, a rise in anti-Semitism. Um, you know, you, you're you're seeing that with Kanye West and and lots of other lots of other areas of of, of popular culture before we had October seventh. However, I think yeah, you know, when you have particularly when you have someone like Elon Musk who, you know, is is tweeting out things. I agree with that. That's absolutely correct. You know, Jews control the media or whatever. Um, the 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 really you, the you're saying are, just to clear you're saying that's what he's saying. Not what you're... Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, what he's, that's what he's saying. Um, you know, um, he, he's replying to other people. Other people say, other people say you know, he doesn't. He doesn't always come out and just say, you know, awful things. But somebody will say something, and he'll be like, "Yep, that's right." You know, which is kind of a, a soft way of doing it, I suppose. Um, but I think one of the real dangers is it's, you know, not to overuse the idea of a slippery slope. But, you know, even ten or twenty years ago, there were things you just wouldn't say in public, even if you believed those things. Because you knew that that they weren't appropriate, or that you would receive, you know, some kind of negative repercussions, and the more this stuff becomes normalized, what's well, it's, you know, it's it's not just it becomes, I, I becomes was... radicalized because what's what what used to be radical becomes normal, and so then what what in order to find something that's more radical, you have to go to an even more extreme sort of version of speech, and I think that's I think that's that's the danger. Um, and well, particularly, the, the Overton and, window shift is what you're talking about, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But well, not, I, I, but not in the political sense, just in the sort of, in in the, in the race discourse, anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism sense, right? Okay. Um, and you know, we've seen this, we've seen this already, and you you see it sort of most directly and imminently in the, in the United States because we have such a huge gun problem. Um, but people are being killed, um, whether they be Muslims who are being killed by you know. Islamophobes or Jews being assaulted by anti-Semites or gay people being assaulted by homophobes. And and I think it's 
I think it is being driven in many ways by popular media, you know, that is that is spreading these ideas. Well, but, but I, I just meant even beyond Twitter. I mean, I don't want to make this political, but I, you know, politicians like a Viktor Orban or a Donald Trump or a Vladimir Putin, I, I think there's reason to be concerned right now. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, and and I mean, and, and this is a this is a broader problem. If you look at what Trump has said recently, you know, I mean, it's it's straight up fascist stuff. You know, it's like if you said if you'd said something, you said something that we don't agree with, we're going to get you, you know, when we come back into power. And even right, that we'll is deport example, you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even that is is an example of this Overton window. Right. It's it's stuff that that, that even if someone thought it 20 years ago, they would never say it. It would. That you know the things that that Trump says, um, you know would be would be career enders, you know thirty years ago. Um, and I'm not I'm not saying that as an apology for, for you know, people who were you know far right in the past. Um, but they you know they did know sort of boundaries at least of, of things they could make explicit in public. You know, um, and he he says stuff that you know he gets away with. Um, and 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 that's an example I think of this creep. Of, of what is acceptable speech, which then moves that to, you know, to because it, it, it's going towards the right. You know, it, it's, it's, you know, I mean, obviously there are absolutely left-wing anti-Semites um, and there are people who express anti-Semitism uh, from the left. But I think what we're seeing is if anything, the Overton window is, is staying relatively solid on that land on that side and, and expanding to the right. And, you know, Speech has consequences, um, and 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 speech can can lead to action, and not just uh, not just anti-Semitism, but in homophobia and Islamophobia and everything else. And you're seeing that, um, you know, it, it's not it's not theoretical. And I think I think that is a problem that needs to be that needs to be addressed. Well, thank you again, Waitman Bourne, for coming on Parallax Views. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you found enlightening my conversations with Dirk Moses and Dr. Waitman Bourne. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do, I need you, the listener, to keep this show going. I have one advertiser for this show, the mighty Mike Swanson of Wall Street Window. But otherwise, this program is completely listener-funded. And I need you to help keep this show going by donating to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with Parallax Views. The way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm... I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. 
new forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.